0: Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Pardes North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha B'Av content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. What is taking away my sense of wholeness, possibly add to my consciousness? Listen, al sure is going to be sitting in brokenness for the next three weeks, at the very least. So it behooves us to question, what does it have to offer? And in my mind, this really is a question of, what's its bracha? What's it adding to my life? Bracha in the sense of that first bet, the second letter of the alphabet, with which the world begins, and so does every masech in or the bar of breshit, the bet resh that son of something, the next level, the stepping out in Aramaic, or the first fruitful venture where we see bracha at all, when the fish start to swarm and fill the seas and God says, right? Well, he says that to man, but he wants more. And that's what bracha is. It's more. So what more can we get out of being broken? And what's even stranger is that bracha comes from the word brecha, right? It's a pool. And if you ever walk the hills of Jerusalem, which I hope you do, and you see the springs that flow out of the rock, usually it's from a tunnel or a crack. And at the foot of each one, there's been carved out of the rock, sometimes with great labor, a pool. Now, why is there a brecha, a pool with every spring that's close to every source? Because in order to really drink from the source, you have to be able to receive. You go ahead and push your face up against the crack in the rock, and it might serve you a little bit. But if you want to bring bracha to the masses, you need a clea that can hold it, something really big. So why is it that brokenness is actually a vessel to hold more? Well, first of all, let's just get it straight. Why are we broken, at least in this three-week period? I mean, I don't want to get into my personal life and what's breaking me. So, number one, the first temple. right? The sages teach us that the first temple was destroyed for Shfikhut Tamim Gidu of the Avodazara. That's the spilling of innocent blood, sexual immorality. And the worshipping of strange gods. You know, that last one might sound strange for the Israelite religion, right? The people who brought the one God to the world. But I was in the city of David yesterday and it always astounds me to see the pictures of the little figurines that our ancestors were worshipping right next to the temple. So that's what was happening in the first temple times. One way to think about this, by the way is to be astounded. <laughs> I mean, they had prophets. They were speaking in the voice of God. The temple was there. Our sages teach us that the presence of God rested on earth. How could the people have been spilling blood in the streets and bowing down to idols? The answer seems to be is that though the wholeness of this experience of Amisrael was there, was able to receive the presence of God on the level that the prophets spoke in God's voice, the particular people out on the street Hadn't really received that blessing. It hadn't had the trickle-down effect, as we might have said in the 80s. And so, therefore, the individuals were really not fit to the task of embodying the greatness that their collective experience could hold. And so, it fell apart. And God looked down and said, listen, I gave you the temple, and I speak through these prophets, and I anointed you a king in order that you see me in the world. The second that the king and the prophets of the temple become a barrier to seeing me in the world, or God forbid, a distraction from it, well, better to get rid of them at all. In the second temple, the Gemara teaches us was destroyed for Sinat Chinam. You might think that the sages of the Mishnah, the greats of Torah, the pillars of the Oral Law, on whose shoulders we stand to see anything at all today, that they would have merited to see the wholeness. And yet, from the outset, it seems that Project wasn't quite headed for success. I mean, as we say, the presence of God never rested in that second temple, nor did the ark come back from exile. There were no more prophets, or at least no more prophetic authority. And yet, what was born out of that was the Mishnah, right? The portable homeland into which our sages worked the Oral Torah so that we, even today, could participate in a conversation that spans 3,000 years and The entire globe. That's right. It's a space beyond time and place where we can all meet. So how could it be that men of such great wisdom, of just incredible passion for the oneness of God, couldn't hold it together? Where did they break down? And we know. And the answer is sinat chinam, causeless hatred. Somehow their learning of Torah and their growth in it drove them apart rather than bringing them together to a certain degree, these individuals in their very greatness and the brilliance of the light that they shine in the world were unable to come together. And so the particulars, the individuals were on an incredible status, but the whole simply wasn't there. The center couldn't hold. And so it fell apart. If you look, closely at this, you'll see it's the dynamic that we know from many other places in Torah of prat and Cloud, the particular and the all-encompassing, the universal. And our master and teacher, of Cook tells us that the first temple was indeed the great generation of the klah, of the wholeness, the National vessel that really held the divine intention. And that the second temple was the great moment of the prod, of these individuals who achieved greatness for themselves in Torah and thus brought a further revelation of God's light into the world. But that when the third temple is built, let it be soon, let it be now, it's going to have to be both. Because Rav Cook, in the words of the Zohar, tells us that it is the reconciliation. Of the prot and the cloud, the particular and the universal for which the soul comes into the world. Why else would I exist in the face of the infinite if it weren't to reconcile that very problem? Now he goes on to tell us that religion, in a sense, is a historic solution to this dilemma. And by by the way, by historic, I don't mean, wow, that was a historic moment. I mean, it's a solution in history. Temporal, and as the great historian Toynbee teaches us, beware of yesterday's solutions becoming tomorrow's problems. Because when the individual truly came out of the closet into modernity, round about, I don't know, we'll call it just the 17th, 18th century, that religion that we had created. Started to break down. You see, it was a brilliant project to hold the whole, the Klal, together, to uh, allow the further development of the Prat, the particular that had emerged from the Second Temple, and to yet let Am Yisrael be a, pra- a particular in the face of the Klal, the wholeness of the nations of the world. We were both Prat and Klal, hurtling through time, breaking and rebuilding, breaking and rebuilding, exile, discovery. Culture, tragedy, 2000 years of this fascinating negotiation. And then sometime with the birth of modernity, when the world woke up to the fact that we're actually all human beings, though it's taken a while to get to the end of that process. Religion started to break down in the face of such a challenge. It retreated into certainty. That's right. Just as the positivist outlook in science in the time of the Enlightenment wanted to banish the shadows of superstition and sacrifice religion on the altar of reason. Illuminate the world with the truth and solve all your problems so you could really be sure. Religion offered the same thing. Dogma and doctrine replaced the divine. And a process began of fighting to prove the certainty of religion on a scientific basis. Something which had never been the goal. The real truth of religion is it allows you to relate to mystery. Because how can I, my particular self, have a relationship to the infinite? But that certainty that was offered with the birth of modernity, which is its own type of wholeness, is itself starting to break down now. And it's inevitable that it would shatter itself on the postmodern problem, as they call it, or the great blessing and teaching which this era brings us, which is that every human being is an aperture for one light. One light, which in its glorious beauty, its tiferet, its harmonious integration, its radiant multiplicity shines out through everyone's eyes. And what do I do when that fact contradicts my understanding of the vessels within which I receive the Torah? Well, part of it is I cry. Because not every problem has a solution. Sometimes you just have to hold it. And the trick is to hold dilemmas like we're facing today. We need a vessel which is stronger than any we've had before. And that vessel is the power of being broken. Because brokenness can offer us peace in place of wholeness. The word whole, shalem, if you add a vav to it, you add that straight letter of connection, it transforms a static static state of perfection, so fragile in our world, into a dynamic state of connection. And in doing that, it becomes that Incredible Kli, bangha, that amazing vessel which can actually hold blessing. It holds more because if we reduce the world to our understanding and our need for certainty forces us to fight that which we don't understand, then we will live in a very small, very small world. But if we're able to accept the fact that we don't understand and to engage the beauty of creation, even when it frightens us, then maybe with a little bit of brokenness, we can be strong enough to hold it. Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Purdue's North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast, And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.